0: In recent months, Israel has seen some astonishing changes in its environment, particularly new peace deals with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, in addition to which, Israel has begun reaching out to international actors outside of the Middle East, at the root of much of Israeli public diplomacy is the relationship between Jews and Christians that exists politically in large portions of the West as well as in Eastern Europe. What is it that fosters this Jewish-Christian cooperation? Are there any impediments to that cooperation? And what might the future of the global conservative movement look like as Jews and Christians are forming cooperative relationships with one another? To discuss this, on today's episode of the podcast, we have two guests, one Jewish and one Christian, both from the conservative movement, and both of whom have extensive experience working on domestic and international campaigns that have brought Christians and Jews together around conservative causes. They'll discuss any number of issues related to this broad topic in this wide-ranging interview. Stick around and give it a listen, and you might find some surprising areas of agreement And disagreement between Jews and Christians today that could shape the future of both the US and the international conservative movement. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to another informative and interesting episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those either of Regent University or of the Robertson School. Remember, you can rate and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider, and you can find us on social media at Blind Politics. We have a very special podcast today, and it's very timely. I'm recording this the day after the signing of a historic peace deal between Israel, Bahrain, and the United Arab Emirates. And so in light of that, and in light of the upcoming election that is going on in the United States, and just a number of other issues that are going on internationally, this is a good time to have a discussion about some of the political relationships between Jews and Christians that have emerged, particularly within the global conservative movement. Obviously, there's some US focus there, but also uh, an international focus as well in the 21st century. And we have two outstanding guests to discuss that issue with us. First, welcoming back to the podcast for his second episode is Professor Hank Jones, who's an adjunct professor at Regent University, also past director of I always mess this up, so let's see if I can get it right this time. Central and Eastern Europe at the International Republican Institute, country director for Macedonia, a man who has done consulting work for a number of different campaigns, political organizations, so on and so forth, both at home and internationally. Hank, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm honored to be here.
0: And joining us for the first time, we have Ken Bricker. Ken is a former spokesman for the America-Israel Public Affairs Committee, has also done international work in Eastern Europe, South and Central Asia, including some counterinsurgency, uh, soft counterinsurgency efforts in uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan, and has worked for a number of international and national clients in both the politics and media slash communications fields. Ken Bricker, welcome to the podcast.
2: AJ, thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be with you.
0: And I would just like to remind listeners that both of these gentlemen were participants in our Politics in the Future of COVID-19 webinars that we did at Regent University this past May, and you can find links to the panels on which in which they were involved on the Regent website, and we'll also post links to those panels in the show notes. So to get started, if we're talking about cooperation between Jews and Christians in the uh, international sphere and, and in the sphere of politics. Question for both of you, what are some of the common values that have led to alliances, both in the U.S. context and internationally, between Jews and Christians in the late 20th and 21st century?
1: Yeah, I think it, um, probably the overarching uniting factor is, is an opposition to extremism. We haven't always agreed on the form of extremism that we don't like between such as, say, Christians and Jews, but the specter of extremism is something that that tends to motivate both of our political bases.
0: Ken, anything you want to elaborate on that?
2: Well, I agree with Hank. I would also say, at its most simple level, thinking about the way those relations work today, I would say that Judaism and Christianity share the foundations of Western civilization as we know it. And what that really manifests itself in is modern democracies. The way we interact is very much a part of the foundations of democracy are very much, uh, very much come from the Judaic Christian tradition, respect for individual rights, civil society. Those traditions really do come from the Judeo-Christian experience going back, oh, 3,000 years. So that's really what I believe is the uh, the co-joinder there. It's basically the foundation for Western civilization as we know it today.
0: Now, Ken, I'm going to ask you as sort of a a political consultant who's who's worked a lot on sort of the Uh, often on the more on the Jewish side of the street. So traditionally, when we look at Jews in the United States, we tend to think of Jewish voters as more likely to align with sort of uh, liberals or the Democratic Party. But there are some small but significant shifts that we can start to see in recent decades. I'm wondering if you could unpack a little bit of that sort of domestic history, and also whether you are seeing a continued realignment or or what you think sort of the future of that is going to be.
2: Well, thank you for the question. There's been some very dramatic changes. Support for Israel in the United States was always a very bipartisan matter. Unfortunately, many people tend to view anti-Semitism in the modern context as something that exists only on the right side of the political fence, meaning neo-Nazis, white nationalists, etc. But actually, the greatest threat, the new anti-Semitism, really comes from the left through a, an ideology that's being espoused in the very far left of the Democratic Party called intersectionality. That's something I hope we can address a little bit later in more detail, but that's the alarming new trend. And unfortunately, it has seeped into the Democratic Party, and I would say that the Democratic Party, ideologically, is not as pro-Israel as it used to be, whereas in the Republican Party, it's almost 100%. You'll find that just about any Republican is pro-Israel. So that's been a dramatic change and the community, the pro-Israel community has had to really adjust its thinking to the new paradigm because the bipartisan model doesn't exist quite the way it used to. There is still great support for Israel in the Democratic Party, but it's been weakened dramatically by the new globalism that you see emerging from the far left in the Democratic Party. So things
1: are different now. Yeah, and that's, that's a good point, Ken. And if, if you don't mind, AJ, I want to kind of set something up that I think Ken can elaborate on in, in just a minute as well. Ken was actually one of the people that that first started looking at building an alliance with evangelicals at APAC, So I think we should hear a little bit from him on that in just a moment. But, you know, the reasons that we are talking about this today, the reasons that Christians and Jews have common cause and are discovering, I think, more and more each day is, is really based on, on a lot of what Ken had said. In the United States, the left has it still uses anti-Semitism as a trope when it's convenient, but functionally, it is behaves as, as, as extremist when approaching persons of faith, whether they are Christians, whether they are Jews, or persons who have done well in capitalist society, and particularly capitalist society in general. Anything that seems to stem from Western values, which are, as Ken has mentioned, fundamentally Judeo-Christian values, anything that is a... Tradition of liberal democracy, which is a free market, freedom of worship, freedom of speech. These things are not coherently well; they don't match much of what the left seems to be pushing forward of policy agendas today. So, what they are doing, whether they know it or not, they are pushing groups that, that cherish these values or have built their lives and their, their careers or their cultures around these values. They're pushing them together, and that's one of the things I think we we want to. Uh, call for is, is further cohesiveness, collaboration, and cooperation. I mean, the Accords yesterday are a perfect example of this. You have Jews, Christians, and Arabs working together because they share common values, and they realize that externally, those that don't share those values are a threat to their their future survival.
0: Okay, so a couple of, of uh, fruitful follow-up questions here, and I don't want to start with Israel. We've got kind of two Two big-ticket big I-word issues that we can talk about here, Israel and intersectionality, and I want to hit both of them before we kind of move on. Starting with Israel, though, one of the things that you sometimes hear about when, when you're, talk, when you're hear, hearing about Christian support for Israel is that this is something that sort of American evangelicals are, are really passionate about, which I think is true. But both of you have worked abroad and I would say probably have a, a decent amount of experience with Christian groups in other parts of the world. Is this support for Israel just an American evangelical thing, or is there something broader within sort of the international Christian community that there's more widespread support for Israel among Christians than people might realize?
2: Well, I'd answer that question, first of all, by looking at the, the one thing that unites all three of the major religions, and that's the city of Jerusalem, where all three of these religions at one point dominated and now share an uncomfortable, I would call it an uncomfortable existence there. Not so much for the uh, Christians because under Israeli authority, all three religions have had unfettered access to all of the holy sites in Jerusalem. That was not the case in the past, where under Muslim rule, Judaism was not allowed in many instances to be practiced, nor Christianity. And in fact, if you go back far enough during the Crusades, Judaism and Islam were not permitted to, to exist when uh, during certain periods of the christian occupation of the holy land only under the state of israel has there been unfettered access to all of the all of the major holy sites for all three religions so in terms of the one thing that unites christians and jews is that christians did not have open access to their holy sites prior to 1967 that has changed dramatically and in fact if you've been to jerusalem i'm sure both of you have you'll notice that the Christian community is a very significant player in Jerusalem. The city administration, you have the Coptic church is very uh, powerful in Jerusalem. All the Christian denominations have a presence in Jerusalem, and all of them have a power base there by which to direct their pilgrims to the holy sites, etc. So I would say access to Christian holy sites, all of the holy sites actually, now exists because of Israel that's something that is often left off the table and people don't mention, but Israel has literally bent over backwards to make sure that Christian sites are available for Christian pilgrims. And that's something that I think the community, uh, the Christian
1: community really appreciates, although it's not covered in the media very often. Yeah, that's a good point. I I think it has helped move the dial towards Israel um, and a lot of other countries that do have predominant Christian populations. But I think America at this point is still Unique in its relationship with Israel, from what I've seen, and, and you know, correct me if, if you've seen something different, Ken. But in particularly uh, European nations that are are nominally Christian, the influence of the United Nations policy, the influence of sort of EU bureaucracy to a certain extent, is still very very powerful, and it is still very very anti-Israel. Only in nations that have also been at, at you know crossways with with those organizations. I think they're starting to see kind of what's going on and, and making independent decisions. I'm thinking of Poland, especially, and also Hungary, for example. But with, with foreign policy, for example, there are, are very few actual security reasons why Israel should not be an ally of the West. But again, based on influences from partnerships with outside organizations and, and other, other, the agendas that are involved there, it's very touchy for some of these nations to have uh, security relationships with Israel anything that kind of stems beyond the basic economic. So, you know, to see Israel as a political issue in these societies is, is really, it's just a marginal issue. And at that point, it is a marginal issue that is very much a stereotype. And I think that though there is opportunity, actually in both directions, both pro and anti, to move the needle significantly. And I expect we'll discuss that a little farther in the podcast. But Right now America is is the the only nation I'm aware of where Christians see Israel as as a key part of their policy and their political perspective.
0: And we will definitely come back to, to some of those issues as we move forward. I did want to just pivot back to Ken, you mentioned intersectionality and you said you wanted to kind of come, come back to that. And I, I want to talk about that as well. I've noticed one of the podcasts that I listen to on a daily basis now, because they're doing it daily, which, which is fantastic during COVID, is the Commentary podcast. And of course, Commentary is, is both uh, sort of, I would say, center-right, conservative, but also has some very explicitly uh, Jewish DNA, although some folks that, that write for them are not Jewish, but they've been very very strongly covering the issue of intersectionality, sort of the dangers of intersectionality. And it it does seem like the rise of a lot of this intersectional stuff on the left has put a target on the back of more progressive Jews in a lot of these circumstances. I wonder if you could unpack what you think is sort of going on there and how you are seeing, what what you are hearing and and how you are seeing Jewish groups respond.
2: Well, thank you very much for the question. It's a very, very relevant question for today's uh life in the Jewish community, because you have a lot of progressive Jews who are very sympathetic to example, uh, for example, Black Lives Matter. Let's talk about Black Lives Matter for a bit. It sounds on the surface, if you just listen to the name of that organization, that it's an organization dedicated to the protection of civil rights for African-Americans. But it's much more than that. Most people do not realize that Black Lives Matter is actually a far left Marxist organization that has a manifesto, and if you read that manifesto, the organization's reason for being, it states very clearly that there is no difference between the shooting of unarmed black men in America and the experience of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, which to me is insane. The idea that these two issues have anything to do with each other is ridiculous, but in this philosophy known as intersectionality, which is all the rage now on the political left, especially in the United States, all grievances against from one smaller party or a perceived aggrieved party to another are linked. So in other words, the experience of Palestinians in the West Bank is equal to that of young African-American males being shot by police, which is equal to the experience of migrant Mexican farmers in the Southwest which is equal to the experience of the, uh, the way uh, Chinese immigrants were treated in the building of the railroads. So in other words, anyone with a historic, ethnic, religious, or class grievance are all united in their efforts against the perceived powers that be, which is an extremely dangerous philosophy that lumps everybody in together and takes in no, does not take into account the unique struggles of all of those people's and what they went through. So it's basically saying it's us against them, all minorities and all minorities with grievances versus the powers that be. And I'll leave that open for people to define as they will. But that's very much a tribal us against them attitude that doesn't fit into reality. And they're forcing us to make a decision, not just American Jews. They're they're making all Americans make a decision. Well, if you're against that, you're against intersectionality the uniting of all these grievances then you are somehow racist homophobic or some you you have some other disease because you don't agree with them it's a very arrogant philosophy that says well if you don't agree with us you must be racist and i think what you're seeing is a real division in this country over people who see the world in those ter- terms very far left liberalism glo- what i call globalist liberalism versus more conservative values that really have been the bedrock of civil society for generations these marxists these leftists these intersectionality adherents want to upset that balance and basically bring a marxist philosophy to governance which i think would be the end of america so this thing this new philosophy among the political left in america especially the far left intersectionality is a very important and dangerous new phenomenon that people are now only just realizing exists. And I'd like to just leave you with one example. It's really quite amazing what's occurred in this country the past six months. We all saw what happened to George Floyd, and I don't think there's anyone who saw that that wouldn't agree that we have a problem, that there is racism, and there is a certain degree of uh, racism against Black males in this country. No one disputes that. But when you have a corporation like Nike, which is promoting this organization, Black Lives Matter, without even knowing what it really stands for, it's quite amazing. It's also amazing that Nike would, cho- would choose to make it such a big issue when it makes its sneakers in Indonesia for slave wage prices. It's really quite the hypocrisy that's going on in America with this movement shows you how far the left will go to upset what they believe is a corrupt order. And that's what you're seeing now is a backlash to that because people realize that intersectionality is very real in the Democratic Party and it presents a threat to the traditional American way of life.
0: And I'll just make a quick a quick comment on that. I'm probably going to at some point do, need to do a longer episode on intersectionality, but I would say they can claim that all grievances are equal, but really what you see is, is feudalism because to badly paraphrase George Orwell, all grievances are created equal, but some are more equal than others. You know, so you could think about what's been happening recently with Disney threatening to boycott Georgia because of the uh, fetal heartbeat bill, but then filming Mulan in Xinjiang where the Uyghurs are being slaughtered and actually thanking that government in, in the credits. You know, the NBA, similar situation. They've been all you know in the forefront of Black Lives Matter. They built a training facility in Xinjiang, probably, we don't know for certain, but probably built with slave labor from... Uyghurs in, in concentration camps, and you know, right there in the backyard, they're they're forming these relationships with these people. And so there is kind of this hierarchy where we care about what happens to some people more than others. And we care about those groups particularly that are being oppressed by the right kind of person. And what I think is fascinating from the perspective of history is that for intersectionality, Israel and sort of the, the more broadly, Jews. Are now considered an oppressor class. They're they're considered the the kind of person who, if they're oppressing other people, we need to pay attention to it. John Podhoritz, again from from commentary, has an, had an interesting comment. He said, you know, if you told my grandfather, who was a you know was a mailman and and his parents came to the United States from Eastern Europe and, and barely spoke English, if you told him he was as white as as Rockefeller, he would think that you were crazy. And so that's this kind of weird way in which Jewish Americans are now being narrated into this sort of oppressor class and I you know I think also back to the origins of Zionism the origins of sort of the, the modern Zionist movement where essentially a lot of these secular modern enlightenment governments are saying to Jews all right we're going to give you your identity as Jews within society but but you have to shed your distinctives and you have to become good Frenchmen or good Germans or, or good you know, citizens of whatever country. And there's kind of a pushback against that from, from Herzl and some of the other people who form you know, the Zionist movement that leads to the state of Israel saying, no, we, we still want to be distinctively Jewish. And if we have to do that within our own state, then we need to start seeking our own state. So I, I think that there's some kind of really interesting cross currents that, that go there. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad you brought up that issue. Hank, is there anything you wanted to add on?
1: Yeah, actually, I want to unpack this just a little bit because, it, you know, we're talking about why Christians and Jews should cooperate politically. Yeah. And this is at the crux of exactly why now it's important that, that we are, are on the same team and, and on the same page on so many issues. You know, as you absolutely correctly mentioned, it depends on who the victim is. Not every victim gets to be included in intersectionality. Christians in Nigeria, Uyghurs, of course. It's it's really very selective. So what is what is the goal if it's not relieving oppression and suffering? I argue the you other know, that it is simply yet another tool the left has hijacked because intersectionality wasn't originally a, a tool of, of the left. It was an idea of of determining you know and understanding discrimination more comprehensively. That's not necessarily a bad idea, but it was immediately hijacked by the left and it was built into what it is now, which is a, a, another weapon to use against Western civilization, Western liberal democracy. And that seems to be the aim of so many of 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 so much of what we see going on right now. You look at the protests. Are they really protest, or are they are they bent on tearing something down and destroying it? They want to replace things, right? What are they replacing? Well, if we look at Western liberal tradition, and you know, again, not to get into a lecture on this, I know we we're, we're, don't have a whole lot of time left. But if you think of what the opposite is of the things that they are saying that we should get rid of, what is that? Those are things that, that, that are not good. We're talking about loss of freedom, loss of individual liberty, state control of economies, state control of thought. We're looking at essentially the way that China is, is beginning to operate, you know, on a daily basis. That is the future of what the left envisions, I think, as, as their solution to Western liberal tradition. Uh, the Jews have already experienced the sharp edge of that sword throughout history. Hank, Hank can I jump
2: in for just a second?
1: Yeah, uh, you, you you made a really, I mean, you made several really good points there.
2: And I just want to, you know, add to what you've said, critical juncture there. I want to just add to something that you said. Jews, progressive Jews are in an incredibly awkward position in the United States now because basically they could agree with every far left progressive idea there is, but then they'll talk about Israel and that person suddenly feels threatened. Israel happens to be the only democracy in a region that is well known for intolerance and injustice. And... They don't want to hear that. You're quite right. The selectivity with which grievances are analyzed and viewed is incredible. But basically in the future, I mean, I'm just amazed at the intolerance. And that's really what we're getting, what you're really getting at, Hank. Yes. The far yes. left today, and of course the far left is starting to take over and dominate the Democratic Party. I think that's what we're really talking about here is so intolerant that in the future, it actually will be like communist China you will believe this, you will walk in a straight line, you will wear your mask at exactly a 45 degree angle. And <laughs> woe betide anyone who disagrees or doesn't follow it, basically what we're talking about is political correctness weaponized. Right. That's what it is, it's political correctness weaponized and it, God forbid, if you don't follow the dictates of an overeducated 23 year old white leftist, sorry, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious there, but not much. Well, well, they're going to cane you in, in public. Right. In the future, they'll be able to uh, publicly cancel you and humiliate you for not towing the line. That's not only undemocratic, it's totalitarian. And, and yeah, I think, and it's, it's the cultural
1: revolution, really. I mean, that's.
2: <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think Americans. I mean, maybe they're waking up to it with the election coming, you know, breathing down our necks. But I don't think people realize how immediate that could be, depending on mm-hmm. what happens in this election. I do not have any faith that the center of the Democratic Party is going to hold against the left, which is growing in strength, growing in power. I think that the COVID pandemic and the racial tension we've witnessed over the past several months
1: have empowered them and made this a very critical juncture in history. Well, I, I totally agree. And just one other thing with with Israel related to what you're saying, you know, Israel. All of a sudden went to from being an, an oppressed state, as we discussed, to really being just another example of American imperialism abroad. Israel has, you know, people, I don't think a lot of Americans realize that Israel isn't the Western liberal democracy in America. They're a little bit more socialist in a lot of ways. You know, it's something that we would think our left would actually really be comfortable with. But, you know, Israel is, is a beacon of the Western liberal tradition in the Middle East. It's the only functioning democracy. It is, it's a wonderful place to be, you know, in terms of individual rights. So how did it all of a sudden become demonized and part of this whole leftist agenda? And, you know, the reason is that it does represent that tradition. That's why it has become a target. That's that's kind of my point here. And the other parts of this tradition, you know, if Israel is is in the crosshairs, let's say, Christians obviously are, are not well regarded by the intersectional left and it doesn't seem that Jews are either. Uh, you know, when we have attacks on mosques, um, you know, in the United States or abroad, people are rightfully upset and angered by it, and that's broadcast throughout the media. Christian churches are burned; doesn't necessarily get the same level of attention. Synagogues are attacked; it gets pro forma attention. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously asserting my own opinions, but it doesn't carry the same level of, of disgust and revulsion that it does with with other types of, of discrimination.
0: Yeah, it depends. I would say it depends on who the who the attacker is in that in that instance.
1: Yes, it absolutely Sometimes.
2: does. You know, that's identity politics. It depends on who's doing what to whom. Depending on who you are on both sides of that equation, it's either a very big deal or
1: no big deal at all. That's not equality. That's not democracy. That's insane. But even if you have a white skinhead attack a synagogue, it's big news for a week yeah. and then you never hear about it again. You don't celebrate the anniversaries, you don't check in on the victims. It's gone. It just. It, it promotes one agenda at that particular time. Because again, it's not really legitimate. But what I'm, what I'm getting at is that, you know, Christians and Jews, you know, and anyone really, but we're talking about Christians and Jews here, that has a, uh, a stake in the Western liberal tradition should wake up, pay attention, and should be working together. Because the alternative is, you know, as we said, China, really.
0: I have a feeling that we're, we're going to find that a lot of the groups that the uh, intersectional elements of the left are claiming to speak, speak for are actually not as interested in intersectionality as they think. But uh, that I think we'll, we'll start to see a picture of that emerge in this election. But, you know, looking ahead, I, I wonder if there's actually as much support for some of this grievance politics in some of the communities that they're claiming to represent as, as they would believe that there is. So. so
1: right right now it's fashionable. You know, if yeah. you accept one aspect of it, you have to accept all of it, which includes, you know, anti, being anti-Israel and to a certain extent anti-Semitic. You have to accept the entire prospect. And because it's fashionable on the left to be in this place, you have to accept all of it without question, even if you have questions. Right. So I, I hope you're right. I hope that we'll start to see cracks diverge and common sense return to most of the people on the left, many of whom I know do have good critical thinking skills. They just seem to have hit pause.
2: Yeah, but by the way, there definitely is, I mean, there are so many exceptions made, and there's so much hypocrisy going on here. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but in this modern period of cancel culture where if you say something or you're perceived to be racist or sexist or homophobic, they can cancel you overnight, especially if you're a public figure. Just a few weeks ago, a member, a, a, a player for the Philadelphia Eagles football team tweeted out something that was vile, absolutely vile, anti semitism it was a tweet, a quote from Louis Farrakhan, and nothing was done. Basically, it made, it made the news. The management of the team squelched it as quickly as possible. Apparently, some meetings were held. If there was a fine, it was never mentioned as part of any news story. Can you imagine if um, a white player on any football team had done something similar, put out a, a racist tweet By the way, no one disputed the fact that it was a vile, anti-Semitic tweet. No one disputed that. And can you imagine if a white player had done that to an African-American player? Their career would be over. They would be excoriated. They wouldn't be safe in their own community. Nothing happened to this athlete. He retweeted retweeted a vile, anti-Semitic tweet that Louis Farrakhan had endorsed. And he's still playing. There was no sanction, as far as I know, no warning the team essentially acted to cover it up. As long as that occurs, I think that we have a huge problem here. And it really is. I mean, I don't want to use the cliche, all lives matter, but they kind of do. And in in this day and age, who you are, so-called identity politics matters so much. Well, you know what? All he did was say some nasty things that would offend some Jews. You know, these Jews are all rich and powerful and they own everything, so who cares about them? That is Deeply offensive to any Jew, and nothing was done about it. No public excoriation, no cancellation of the player's contract, no suspension, no nothing. So obviously, racism is a political football, and it depends on who's who is the racist and who is the victim. And if you're not, if you don't align with the left's idea of who's allowed to be a victim and who's allowed to be the villain, um, you're in serious trouble. And there's just something fundamentally wrong with that.
0: So I want to pivot a bit to some practical questions. So I think we've kind of covered in in some detail some of the reasons why you might see Christians and and Jewish groups aligning, if nothing else, because there's sort of an ideology opposing a lot of things they hold in common, and and that's not necessarily taking some of their concerns as seriously. So my question would be, what are some of the practical impediments? Why aren't we seeing more of this, this cooperation, both in terms of U.S. domestic politics, but also internationally? Why aren't we seeing more cooperation between Israel and some of these other countries? Why aren't we seeing more sort of global Christian-Jewish cooperation? And then follow up to that, what are some strategies to overcome some of the the impediments to that cooperation?
2: You know, that's a great question. I would say I would disagree a little little bit with you. I think that Israel has uh, great cooperation. Four of the countries that are rumored to be the most anti-Semitic in Eastern Europe, Hungary. The Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Poland are actually Israel's strongest trading partners in Europe.
0: If you wouldn't mind, let's let's drill down on that a little bit. So and I, I've seen that too, and I've been I've been puzzled by it because it seems like, you know, the Poles and the Hungarians on a government to government relationship have very close relationships with Israel under Netanyahu. Yet there's this constant allegation of, of anti-Semitism. And I know both of you guys have worked in Eastern Europe, so I'd like to get your, your feedback on that issue. And, and Ken, if you wouldn't mind just kind of you know carrying on from that and then um, Hank get some comments from you on, on that as well.
2: Great. I love to, I mean, there has been a strong tendency toward anti-Semitism in all of Eastern Europe for hundreds of, of years, for centuries. Uh, there's nothing new about that and there are very historic reasons for it. But basically I would say that when you look at Israel's relationship with these countries, Obviously, Israel is not bothered by those rumors. That's what they are. I mean, to expect there to be no anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe uh, is just is not a realistic way of looking at the world. But having said that, if you look at the practical realities, Israel has not only um, a good business relationship with these countries, they cooperate in military affairs. Israel's the number one supplier of advanced agricultural equipment to Eastern Europe which has helped them in turn improve their farm yield and their agricultural output. The relations are very, very close on a number of fronts. And what I would refer to as the cultural element of the relationship, which you're referring to, I just don't think enters into it very much. I mean, these countries all have their own interests, but what is perceived as anti-Semitism in the United States and maybe some other quarters, especially among the left in Israel itself, it doesn't really make a lot of waves. It isn't really something that affects policy on the important decisions that really matter, like military cooperation, business-to-business partnerships, and regional security. Israel cooperates very closely with all four of those nations and other nations in the region as well and are doing very, very well. And I think part of that is obviously mutual interest, but more than that, it is that cooperation that comes from shared values. Israelis that I know are very European. Many of them come from European backgrounds, and they're very comfortable doing business in Eastern Europe, having Eastern European delegations come to Israel and having them invest in Israel. It works both ways. It's a very comfortable relationship. Those issues, I think, are greatly exaggerated. I think what the left doesn't like is that Yes, these countries have a long history of anti-Semitism, but the picture is much more complicated than that. And frankly, the relations between them are excellent. And I think that bothers the left. I think that they would like there to be more tension, but there really isn't. I would think the real problem is with the American Jewish community, which, as you stated earlier, tends to be more left than right. I would say probably by 70 to 30 percent. Some people would say, I'm being generous. Jews do tend to be progressive or on the liberal side of a political calculation. So they want to believe that anti-Semitism is something that only exists on the far right, which has its origins, of course, in the Nazi experience, the Holocaust experience. And that just isn't realistic. That isn't just that is just not what's happening. Israel has these great relations with these Christian European nations because they have far more in common than then they don't. I and mean, whatever the history was, look at the history of Israel with the Arab states. And as you mentioned at the very top of the podcast, Israel now has unthinkably just established full relations with both the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, which if you'd asked me 10 years ago, if that would ever happen, I would have looked at you like you were crazy. If you'd asked me 10 months ago, if I thought that would happen I would have told you you were crazy. Right. And see, so all this good news and what you're seeing is that there's much, many of these countries that are traditionally enemies of Israel have finally discovered that they have far more in common with Israel than with some of Israel's enemies or with the the, uh, countries or the groups of people who want to see Israel destroyed. And they're acting on it. They understand that it's in their interest to have relations with Israel. For example, in the case of the Emirates and Bahrain, they will benefit dramatically from Israeli agricultural technology. And also from security the gulf states are as afraid of iran and its nuclear ambitions as israel is there's so much in common between these folks that religion actually is the least important part of the relationship but the fact of the matter is israel has shown that it can get along with any country no matter what the dominant religion is based on purely practical realities but the christian relationship i think that's really more of a values issue I just know that, you know, if you ask any Israeli where they're going to go for their vacation, it's inevitably Eastern Europe. Israelis come from Eastern Europe. It's part of their tradition. Is there anti-Semitism in Hungary, for example? Of course there is. There's anti-Semitism in every Eastern European country due to very well-known historical reasons, but it's much less than it was. And the fact of the matter is the kind of anti-Semitism that's growing comes from the left not from the right. Of course, if you're from the left, it's not in your interest to acknowledge that. And that's what we're really seeing here.
0: I wonder if I, and I'll pivot this back to, to Hank and then Ken, you can jump in on it as well. I wonder if part of it isn't, isn't sort of a logic by syllogism. So, you know, we've seen the rise of a lot more sort of what I would call nationalist leaning politics in, in Eastern Europe. And so from the sort of the perspective of the left, but also sort of just a historical perspective, you know, nationalism in Europe has been seen as something that's associated with anti-Semitism. So I wonder if there's just sort of a, a, an equation of these people are nationalists, ergo, they must also be anti, anti-Semitic. But, you know, if you think about Israel, Israel is also a very nationalist country. Uh, is. Nat- nationalism is is a core element of Israeli identity. So you can see how actually that idea that we have these national distinctives that can't just be erased might actually draw them together to, to a certain extent.
2: Oh, that's a very, very good point. I hadn't thought about that, but I agree with you 100 percent. Israel is a super nationalist country. But more than that, I think the real issue here, I mean, something that we haven't discussed yet, but I think is very, very important, is the fact that if you look at the experience of Eastern Europe versus Western Europe during the great immigration crisis that occurred over the past few years, especially with Syrian refugees coming from the Middle East to those countries, basically the Western Europeans opened the doors to these immigrants almost unfettered, very little control elements, and the Eastern European countries did not. I'm not against immigration, and certainly those people were in a very bad state. I mean, Syrian refugees were literally, the issue was finding a place to immigrate or possibly dying of starvation. So I don't want the listeners to think that I have no heart. Certainly, I believe that these refugees needed to be taken care of. But let's be honest, the Western European countries, which allowed unvetted tens of thousands of Muslim and Arab refugees from Syria and other locations in the region to come to their country regretted the way it was done. In many cases, they've degraded their own culture. We all have seen the stories of what's happened. And what has happened is these countries are at risk of losing their cultural heritage. They are. The the Frenchness of France, the Britishness of Britain, has very much been called into, into question by bringing in immigrants who are mostly Muslim who come to those countries and do not necessarily integrate as well as they should. There is an exception, for example, in Denmark. Denmark. Denmark has a very healthy immigration scheme, but when you come to Denmark, there are benchmarks. After a certain period of time, you have to know how to speak the language fluently. And if you don't, or if you, they see signs that you're not integrating yourself into society, they can deport you. That's very rare. The other Western European countries have allowed... Large-scale Islamic and Muslim immigration into their countries, and it has fundamentally changed the Europeanness and the Christian heritage of those countries. In Eastern Europe, they did not allow them in, and frankly speaking, they did not suffer the same kind of socioeconomic dilemma that the Western European countries did. So, one man, you could say, yes, it's anti-Semitism. Is it anti-Semitism? Or is it maybe just nationalism and the desire to protect one's old culture, one's own culture and religion?
1: Yeah, no, that, that's a really good point. You know, the, the, the concept of nationalism sometimes is, is demonized improperly. It's more equivalent to patriotism. And I think what Ken's describing in this case, you have people that, that are, have an affinity for what they've built, you know, and they don't want to see it changing without their consent. And that's really how all this started. And, you know, what they have an affinity for in this case is, uh, I keep, hate to keep going back to this, but it is the, the Western liberal tradition that has allowed them to have what they have. And when you bring in large numbers of a population that don't subscribe to that tradition, the alternatives are that you have less freedom, particularly less freedom of expression, less freedom of thought, and you also have a, an increasingly less free market. And history has continues to bear out that those things don't help human flourishing. So it's, it's there. much of this is understandable. And the left, as we've talked about, uses this anti-Semitic label as a weapon when they don't always very much believe it. You know, you look at, at you know, I lived in Slovakia for, for a while. And as you pointed out, i spent significant time in, in all over Europe. I saw much less anti-Semitism there than I see in America today. I, I hate to say it, but, you know, we, we've allowed it to go unchecked.
2: Yes, anti-Semitism is definitely, unfortunately, a growing phenomenon in the United States. Whereas in Europe, it's always been there. I I don't want to be too simplistic or stereotype too much, but frankly, it almost doesn't matter in Eastern Europe anymore. I mean, Jews are not suffering. The the Jewish communities in Poland and Germany are growing. That doesn't mean that there isn't anti-Semitism there, but those communities are actually flourishing and, and regenerating. And frankly... The left-wing type of anti-Semitism that I'm speaking of is the one that's growing, and it's growing in the United States. The kind of totalitarian or fascist origination of Eastern European anti-Semitism, frankly, what I've been trying to say been beating around the bush, but frankly, it doesn't matter very much. If the Israelis don't care about it, why should American Jews? I mean, really, it's almost like the left that finances the Democratic Party or the far-left advocacy organizations that exist in the united states many of which are funded by george soros and other very far left democrats i would even call them democrats i would just say far left progressives they want the narrative to be that anti-semitism is white nationalism that it's neo-nazism and that it's yes its origins are from europe and specifically from germany that's what they want you to believe, because it makes progressive Jews who are otherwise comfortable with the left, except on the is the issue of Israel, comfortable. That's why they do it. You have to remember that the Democratic Party, many of the liberal Jewish establishment in this country, um, give a lot of money to the Democratic Party. That's not something they can live without. So there is a sensitivity issue there, and it makes it very easy for them to figure out what they want to do here. They want to say if you're anti-Semitism equals swastika. That's all they want you to know about anti-Semitism. The fact that there's a huge movement in the far left of the Democratic Party called intersectionalism, which basically is just ripping that model apart, is not something that they're comfortable with. Because, as I said before, if 70 percent of Jews are liberal Democrats, now forget about the voting power i mean jews are statistically significant probably only in new york and florida in terms of a voting block but many left-wing jews give a lot of money to the democratic party and to other i would say progressive causes no one wants to interfere with that on the left so it's very convenient to make anti-semitism strictly something that exists on the right that's something that uh, let's just say their cover is blown People are now beginning to pick up on it. And if you look at the globalist, left-wing, Marxist ideology, Israel is front and center of their criticism. So I don't think they're going to be able to get away with that. And that does create a very difficult schism and a decision for Jews in this country, in the United States. Are we going to continue to support Democrats and Democratic candidates who may have very twisted views on Israel and Jews? That's something that I think Democrats in uh, generally, but Jewish Democrats in particular are going to have to really think about very right now. I mean, going into this election, uh, this is very scary. Let's assume that Joe Biden wins. Let's assume that the Democrats get full control of the Senate. There's already a very budding and very strong far left movement in the Democratic Party. I think if they win, you start seeing policy initiatives, for example, withholding aid to Israel, Um, not to mention the various domestic ideas they have, which uh, I'm not going to get into. But you're going to see foreign policy change dramatically if that happens. And that's something that should scare every American, but especially Jews, because that relationship with Israel could change very dramatically if the scenario I mentioned comes to pass.
1: Well, that, that's representative of, I think, the differences in the anti-Semitism here and there. It is increasing in the United States. It's increasing, I think, because it's becoming institutionalized in the party here, in the, in the Democratic Party. That's um, a good point, Hank.
2: It, it is not, becoming institutionalized. Yeah, it's right? not
1: long until that, that you know, I, I see traces of that in the European Union itself, in, in the European Commission and the governance in the European Union. Um, it's not long until that infiltrates to a greater extent in the left in the left of Europe as soon as they figure out They can get political traction from it. Mm-hmm. I think an excellent or two excellent test cases I know one you were actually deeply involved in can but two excellent test cases in, in Europe um, the NATO basin in Poland and then uh, more extensively and more political the uh, the Soros Orban feud and how Orban was immediately labeled as an anti anti-semite and his party fetish as well Simply because they were opposing Soros' very, very globalist policies, which were essentially trying to undo everything they'd done and, and, and you know, they're protecting their culture as they saw it.
0: There's so, a, Sor- wait, sorry, uh, there's huh? a Soros-Orban feud? Well,
1: that's what I'm calling it. You, can, okay. you probably have a better term for it. No, no, the- no, I'm,
0: I hadn't heard about that, so I'm I'm very intrigued because, of course, there's been, in American politics, very, very different perspectives on Orban from some some sectors than from others. And, you know, I, I didn't know that the two of them actually had a history. So if you guys wouldn't mind. I don't know that me. they
1: do. I'm just talking about this current, you know, essentially the campaign against Soros and his organizations in Hungary gotcha. was pioneered by Orban and by Fidesz. Okay. You know, for very good reason. And that, that's what I'm referring to. Okay. And in response to that, you know, the, the left across Europe pretty much immediately started to say well this is this is rooted in Hungarian anti-semitism they wouldn't be doing this if they weren't anti-semitic which is completely off base from where this was going you know so, um, I mean uh,
2: the fact of the matter is AJ uh, George Soros has about as much in common with Judaism as uh, a brick wall does uh, he really <laughs> he's uh, he's uh, he's basically a leftist Marxist he's not religious but he is Jewish I mean he is ethnically Jewish what you're describing there, is in his attempt to appeal to Hungarian nationalism, a series of billboards were put out that were super critical of George Soros. And there were some elements of the media on the left that attempted to portray that as Orban using anti-Semitism to go after him. But what he was really doing was, again, this is where perspectives differ. He was trying to say that world leftists, and by the way, when you're talking about world leftists, there are very few that have the kind of power and money that George Soros has. He's kind of in a very unique group. So going after George Soros, I don't think was a problem. I think some people interpreted that as him going to, relying or using traditional Hungarian anti-Semitism to go after George Soros and strengthen his own message, which is not something that I believe occurred. I think that, you know, George Soros is the boogeyman for anyone who's a conservative. He's been around for a very, very long time. He funds causes that are very, very, uh, you want to call them progressive. I call them just far left policies that are um, almost Marxist. So, again, he was a poster child, but he was a poster child for being a globalist leftist, not for being a Jew. But, of course, again, the left found that a very convenient way of beating up on Orban by suggesting that he was using the canard of anti-Semitism to go after Soros when he was just going after the globalist left which wants an open-ended immigration policy, which Hungary opposes, which wants uh, the Christian religion to be denigrated, which Orban doesn't want. So it's very easy to say that guy is an anti-Semite. The truth of the matter is Orban has held the line against the global leftist policy initiative. Hank, you made a reference to it. It's already alive and well here in the United States. But as you correctly said, this is now starting to creep into EU policy this kind of ultra-political correctness, yep. where someone like George Soros is considered a hero. And it's, well, it's this insidious penetration of far-left ideology into major global and European institutions, which is what people should be afraid of, not
1: Viktor Orban saying we want to preserve our Christian heritage.
2: That's my opinion.
1: Right. And, and there, there's a history to this. And then you mentioned solutions, AJ, and I want to get to that at, at the end of this. But you know what happened with Hungary was they were the first country to really just say no to the EU over this refugee issue for for reasons that you know in retrospect were quite valid, but the fact that they said no and the fact that this this globalist agenda as Orban saw it and as many others saw it wasn't going to be enacted caused the um, <laughs> this uh, Orban's behavior they wanted to make an example of him and. You know, Soros' organizations, remember he finances, as, as Ken said, many different global organizations, some of which are, are funded by U.S. tax dollars to, to do development work. They essentially were making an effort to take him out, to take out his party from, from power. They were very much involved in trying to influence Hungarian public opinion. They were very much involved in trying to influence Hungarian election. So it is not unusual for there to be a pushback, and that's what was happening in this case. But the fact that they were interested in doing this, that, that he had a target on his back for what he was doing and saying is of real interest. The solutions to
0: this. You know, real quick before we before we get to that, yeah. that makes me wonder, I don't know if either of you guys followed the recent Polish election, but there were similar allegations yeah. made about Duda, who just recently won in Poland from the Law and Justice Party, that he was sort of trafficking in these anti-Semitic tropes. Yeah. And I, I hadn't dug into it as much, but I'm wondering if that's sort of a similar situation well, if either of Ken, you guys know about that. I know
1: you know a lot about this, Ken. And then after we talk about Poland, I do want to get the solutions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, first
1: of all, I I should tell you, AJ, in interest
2: of full disclosure here, that I have worked and continue to work occasionally with the the Polish government as a consultant. Okay. I can tell you, if if they hate Jews, I haven't seen it, especially, (laughs) I mean, they pay on time, too. So that's, uh, in my business, that's always a good sign that they like you. Um, I will tell you this, and I'll just use a metaphor rather than try to explain that Poles aren't innately anti-Semitic. If you go to the Yad Vashem Memorial in Israel, It's a Holocaust memorial. At the end of the exhibit is called the Hall of the Righteous. And righteous individuals, righteous Gentiles who risked their lives and sometimes died saving or hiding Jews during the Holocaust, their names are imprinted on rock at the end of the exhibit from every country. And while it is true that Poland has a a, a terrible record of anti-Semitism and there were many Poles that sided with the Nazis and stole Jewish property. All that's true. But guess what? Of all the countries that hid Jews and protected Jews, Poland had more righteous gen- has more righteous Gentiles than any other country in Europe. So obviously, this is a cloudy picture. This is not black and white. The Polish government has met all EU requirements when it comes to Holocaust restitution and other things, and again, has a very vibrant cooperative relationship with Israel as a trade partner, military cooperation, those things never get reported, but the relations are very, very good. Anti-Semitism tends to be something that, as you know, as we said before, and it's becoming a theme in this conversation. This is something that the progressive Jewish community in America tends to notice, whereas world Jew, jewry and Israeli jewry don't really care. And I think that is in large part due to the influence of people like George Soros, who through his many organizations, funds global, far-left, progressive policies. Let me give you an example, just one very quick example. I have nothing against someone who wants to have a different sexual orientation than what they're born with. But when you have an organization like Soros' that supports, for example, mandatory transgender bathrooms... That's just not something that's going to go down well in Hungary. I mean, I'm just telling you right now, in conservative Christian countries, they do not, they will never think that it's okay to have transgender bathrooms. Now, I don't care what someone, you know, what, what, how someone wants to pursue their sexual orientation. I really don't. But Soros supports issues like that. In a deeply conservative country, that's going to be rejected. Is that anti-Semitism? No, that's just a very Christian conservative culture that wants to remain a conservative Christian culture and does not accept the new left's opinion about what's correct and what isn't correct. And that's the problem. And what we're seeing is a clash of these civilizations, the new left with this very far left progressive ideology, which people like George Soros finance, finance into the billions. And older Christian cultures that are in danger of being run over by a new world that doesn't really benefit them and that they do not want to be a part of. And unfortunately that's playing out before us and it's a very powerful thing. I, I just want to one last point. Hank, one of you said many important things today, but the one that scares me the most is the way European and global institutions are starting to pick up this mantra largely because there are so many far left ideological groups that are penetrating those institutions mm-hmm. and it's becoming ripped in other words it's becoming these things that we've mentioned these far left initiatives are now becoming the rule of the day and if you oppose them you're the, there's something wrong with you that's what's at risk here that's what's actually happening and it's happening before our very eyes right here in this country between the left and the right and I think that if the left prevails, expect major, major changes that will not be good for conservatives. Agreed. I
0: think we know. I think we know how Ken Bricker is voting in the upcoming election. <laughs> Hank, I know you wanted to talk about some solutions. So yeah. Let's let's start with that. And
1: you know, we can get if we want to do another podcast, we can get into some strategies and tactics and, and get into a lot of detail on this. So I think the most important thing to understand, you know, Holy Scripture tells us that a house divided cannot stand, and it is really important, as we stand against a a radical and totalitarian leftist worldview, that both Christians and Jews are in the same house. The use of anti-Semitism, when it is unfounded as a a hammer and as a wedge, is something that, that needs to be opposed, be recognized, understood, and opposed. As we've talked about with Hungary, as has happened in other places in Poland and elsewhere, and it will continue to happen, if Jews, who aren't always paying, let's say, a lot of attention, see this and react to it, it, it does its job. But if we can all work together and stay educated and stay informed and reject the notion that unfounded anti-Semitism is being as a, as a tool to actually advance a larger, broader anti-Semitic agenda, I think we'll have the very very solid first steps in opposing this. It's important for both Christians and Jews to be very educated on this issue politically and to communicate with one another on a regular basis. We may not share common faith to some extent, but we do share common values, and that's what really matters. And those values need to be defended by us together. And that, to me, is, is the overall solution. Completely agree, Hank. Very well
2: said. I think that Jews and Christians still have so much in common, and I think we need to start really focusing on that. But what, what really scares me is that many of the things we said today most Jews in this country are completely unaware of. That's because they're reading The New York Times or The Washington Post or watching CNN. Right. Where it's not in the interest of any of those organizations to say that George Soros is funding all of these very far left causes, which you may not approve of. And uh, certainly the conservative Christian community is unaware of it as well, or maybe they're they're more aware of it. But unity is the first step. Christians and Jews have so much that unite them. They need politically to look at the world in a more unified way, both globally and also domestically here in the United States. They are natural allies. The the traditions are almost identical in terms of respect for democracy and rule of law and basic fairness. Those are things that come from our religious traditions. Respect for other people's opinions, respect for all people, respect for human life and respect for the belief in God. And if you look at Marxist ideology, there is no room for God in the progressive left that I'm talking about. Right. So we're talking about, you know, there's there's a lot at stake here. There's a, you know, there's a whole, the whole world is at stake here and the kind of future that we're going to leave our children and the kind of things they're going to grow up believing are true or not true or what's good or what's not good. It literally is as simple as that. So I do hope that people educate themselves and One of the things we need to do all of us need to do is educate people about what's really happening here i'm very much afraid of what the the modern left the very far modern left with the financing it gets from people like george soros and other left-wing institutions i really worry how that's going to fundamentally change our society and the way we live and i don't want those changes and i think if you're a christian or a jewish conservative You need to fight for that. You need to fight for your way of life. This is not going to have a happy ending if we don't get involved.
1: Agreed. And I think this is a a first call for better coordination amongst all the different groups that purport to advance both Christian and Jewish causes. And for my my Christian friends out there who are are advocates for religious liberty, I ask us all to be as concerned about the religious liberty of Jews worshiping in New York and Paris as we are of of Christians worshiping in California and Nevada. Well, thank you, Hank. Yes. Yes
0: absolutely you know and particularly given the degree to which orthodox jews in new york were explicitly targeted in a blatant first amendment violation by the mayor of new york who said yep. i have a message for all the jews of new york if you don't change your behavior you know there're going to be consequences that is blatant singling out of discrimination against one religious group in a way that is constitutionally impermissible and it really has kind of gone below the radar which I find very, very troubling, because you can't, and, and you know, first of all, because you can't single out one group. Second of all, just from a, a pure pra- pragmatic perspective, if we let yeah. them get away with doing it to the Orthodox Jews in New York today, they're going to do it to Christians tomorrow.
1: Right. And don't forget that de Blasio spoke at the APAC policy conference a uh, year before last.
0: I did not know that.
1: Or actually, last year. And, you know, this is what we're talking about. Out of one side of the mouth, they will, they will slander people for being anti-Semitic, wrongly. And uh, the other, other side, they're actually promoting anti-Semitic policies. Yeah.
0: Um, so I want to close with a little bit of story time in the hopes that we can maybe uh, close on a somewhat more optimistic note. So Hank, you mentioned earlier, and, and Ken, I wanted to pick up on this, that Ken, you, you had been involved in bringing sort of evangelicals more into connection with, with APAC. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that experience. Um, and do you think that there are some lessons there that could be applied to Jewish-Christian cooperation in the future?
2: Yeah, I think that there's so much room for further cooperation on uh, so many different fronts. There are a lot of wonderful things happening. One of the things I loved at APAC was bringing Christian leaders to Israel because they just fell in love with all of the, the sites, I mean, the, all the holy sites that they read about in the Bible. And then you actually like pull up, you know, to where Jesus was born. It's a very heavy experience. And the emotions that are involved are just incredible. I actually had the honor of leading a tour of legislators and also journalists and uh, some Christian groups to Israel when I worked at AIPAC, and it was among the proudest experience I ever had because the trip was so deeply meaningful to these folks who knew nothing about Israel. They really knew nothing about it. They knew their Bible really well, but they had never been there. And so they were actually standing where... You know, some of the Bible's most important stories were told. They were actually standing right there. We actually had one a, a Baptist lady from Alabama. I'm not going to mention who it was. She was part of a, a Christian delegation. And when we went to the um, the Jordan River, she had a breakdown. She had an emotional breakdown. and was crying. She said Jesus was here. And it took us about four or five hours to get her to leave. <laughs> uh, so I, I've seen those things so often. And it, 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 well, it's, it's hey, a beautiful yeah. thing. I'm talking about the emotional side of it. But the fact that as a Christian, you can come to Israel and go to any site you want to go with total security and peace of mind is, I think, a lot more of a big deal than people make it out to be. But I, I would hit all the notes that Hank hit. The, the similarity of values, the fact that both cultures are under threat and that they need to unify uh, to protect each other. I think that there are just so many different arrows that are pointing us in the same direction. I have a million ideas, as I'm sure you do, Hank, on how we can approach that and make it a more cooperative relationship on a number of fronts. And I would love to be involved in anything like that, because I think without it, the future for us could be very bleak or it could be very good. But if we don't make our voices heard and work together in a unified way effectively, we could lose everything.
1: Oh, I just, I was going to point out, I am, I was on one of those Christian leadership tours too with APAC, and I can attest to everything you said, except for the uh, extra time at the Jordan. We were on schedule.
2: You can't just pick up a 300 pound woman and remove her from the Jordan River, I learned. Uh, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, we had to wait for her to have that experience. And you know what? Everyone did. The bus driver waited a couple of extra hours. It was such an emotional moment, probably one of the highlights of the woman's life. Um, you get to see that once or twice in a lifetime. So I'm, I would love to see it again. And I'm, I'm just, uh, to me, it's just so natural. I mean, the, the Christians and Jews have so much in common uh, and they're under such great threat. If, um, let me put it to you this way, if we don't get our act together really soon, we'll have only ourselves to blame. And I'll leave it at that.
1: Absolutely agreed.
0: All right. And on that cheerful note, I think that is going to be a wrap for this episode. Thank you both, Uh Hank Jones, and Ken Brooker for coming on the episode today. Listeners, please remember that you can rate and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. If you have questions or episode topics, please leave them on the Facebook page. And again, if we get enough questions gathered together, we will do another AMA episode and Ask Me Anything episode here uh, fairly soon. Not sure exactly when this is going to be airing, so I can't tell you, as always, what is coming next, but we have some exciting content as we move through this crazy season in our political life together. And so stay with us and you can find out more. You can get the answers to your questions. You can get the best analysis that we can bring you about what's happening at Blind Politics And so please uh, continue to subscribe and continue to listen. And so for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.